Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is good to gather with you again to praise our, our God of all nations. In case I haven't met you yet, my name is Kelton. I also have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here of Stafford Baptist Church. I'd encourage you uh, to, to greet me in the lobby afterwards. I'd love to get to know you. This morning, we continue in our sermon series in the, the Gospel according to Matthew, Kingdom Come, this morning in Matthew 15, starting in verse 21. So if you would... Please open your Bibles with me to chapter 15, where we're going to be in verses 21 through 39, pleading with Jesus. I'd like to start today, though, with some congregation participation, throwing you a curveball, partly because I'm, I'm curious, but also because it demonstrates my point, I think. I would like you to raise your hand. If you are ethnically Jewish, if you are Hebrew, please raise your hand. Okay. A little bit of half raise there. Okay. So only a half a Hebrew here, right? <laughs> that's, that's not too surprising. I think it's pretty easy for us to take that for granted that a group of people gathered as a Christian church is completely Gentile. But frankly, to an early disciple of Jesus, that would be hard to imagine. You know, we get our name Christian from the word Christ, the Christ we follow, the word for a Jewish Messiah. Jesus was born in fulfillment of Jewish scriptures to a Hebrew mother. He lived and died in Israel and had 12 Jewish disciples. He spoke Hebrew, though probably some Greek as well. When this Jewish rabbi sent out his 12 disciples early in his ministry to proclaim his message, he told them, Matthew 10, 5, and 6, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So how is it? How is it that the local has gone so absolutely global all the way here to a bunch of Gentiles in Stafford, Virginia? Certainly there are hints, there are promises, glimpses of this throughout the Bible. This has been the plan from the beginning and even from before the beginning. But one of the most important turning points in that global plan is our passage this morning. Now, it might not look like it at first, but, but our passage this morning is a, a great step in the ministry of Jesus toward a global movement of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, not just of the Jewish people, but of the whole world. Before we read, though, it is appropriate for us to pause and to, to ask for God's help in the hearing of His Word and the proclamation of it, that we would not merely be hearers of it, but doers as well. So please, before we read, would you please pray with me? Let's pray. Our Father, it is right for us to, to come to You to ask that by Your Spirit, the same Spirit that inspired this Word, that would now come and reveal it to us. Lord, not only that we would hear it, but that by your Spirit we'd be doers of your Word. Lord, that we would see in your Word not only who Jesus is, but that we would come to him, Lord, as our capable and compassionate Savior, the Savior not only of the Jews, but all peoples. Lord, we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Please read with me from God's Word, Matthew Chapter 15, starting in verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowds wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men beside women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got in the boat and went to the region of Magadan. The word of the Lord. Well, these stories might seem quite familiar if you've been with us much for our series in the Gospel of Matthew. The, The woman at the beginning feels a lot like the Gentile centurion back in Matthew 8, who comes to Jesus pleading, not for a daughter, but his his servant at home, who, who Jesus also commends for his faith and heals the servant with just a word. Next, we have the, the report of, of many healings in verses 29 through 31. It's, it sounds like the, the little summaries we've had throughout the Gospel of Matthew in, in chapter 4, 8, 9, 14. And the last story, the feeding of the 4,000, is nearly exactly the story we studied in, in Matthew 14, the feeding of the 5,000. Are these just... Repetition of what we saw before? No, the major difference is where Jesus does these things with who. And tucked into Matthew's point are three reasons that all people should come to, come to Jesus. Our, our main idea this morning, the capable and compassionate Savior welcomes the pleading prayers of all peoples. The capable and compassionate Savior welcomes the pleading prayers of all peoples. We're going to study this passage by looking at at three reasons it gives us for all peoples to come to Him. Our outline this morning, come to Jesus first because He will not delay long. That in verses 21 through 28. Second, because He is capable that in verses 29 through 31, and third, because he is compassionate. In verses 32 through 39, we come to Jesus because he will not delay long, because he is capable, and because he is compassionate. I pray that that as we go, this this room full of of Gentiles would come to Jesus to find him a, a capable and compassionate Savior who welcomes the pleading of all peoples. So our, our first reason, brothers and sisters, my Gentile brothers and sisters, to come to Jesus because he will not delay long. The first major detail might be easily missed. Where he goes. Matthew account, Matthew's account continues in verse 21 with, with Jesus withdrawing again. He had withdrawn, if you'll remember, from Herod's attention and now he seems to be withdrawing from the attention of the The Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem, the delegation that met him in our passage last week. But where, look with me at verse 21, where does the text say that he goes? 
in verse 21, to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, I, I don't suppose that those are the most recognizable names. Bethlehem, we know, Jerusalem, but Tyre and Sidon. Well, you might remember them from Matthew 11 in verse 21, where Jesus uses Tyre and Sidon as an example of, of wicked places that yet might repent if his mighty works had been done there. He teaches us there that the Tyre and Sidon are wicked, but also that he had not done mighty works there. Tyre and Sidon are, are ancient cities, sometimes helpful to Israel. Pro, they provide the building materials, materials for the temple. But, but by and large, the, the prophets condemn Tyre and Sidon from nearly beginning to end. For example, Amos chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the walls of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. The prophets make it clear that they are enemies of God's people, deserving of punishment from God. Verse 21, then, is, is not another one of Jesus' trips throughout Israel. Tyre and Sidon would be to the northwest of Israel, along the Mediterranean coast, about 40 miles from Galilee. And unless I'm mistaken, this is the, the only trip that Jesus makes outside of Israel except his flight to Egypt as an infant. I'm trying to, to think of a comparison. D despite the huge difference in size, it, it'd be something like Jesus has been ministering in Alaska, but in verse 21 he, he crosses the maritime border into, into Russia. He's crossed the border into enemy territory. Jewish readers of verse 21 would see warning lights blaring. But it gets clearer. Verse 21 begins with, And behold, which is something like a literary gasp. <gasps> Jesus is approached by a woman, a woman from that region. And Matthew uses a word to describe her that is used only once in the New Testament. He calls her a Canaanite. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, that word will be familiar to you. Canaanites were the residents of the land promised to Abram and his descendants, the land Israel was to inherit. And the Canaanites were also wicked people like the residents of Sodom and, and Gomorrah. Matthew uses this dated term intentionally to highlight the ancient animosity between these peoples. So you wonder, as you read in verse 21 and 22, is Jesus here to train his disciples how to rain down fire from heaven that Amos promised? He's finally at the judgment curriculum in their discipleship. Well, what happens when the woman approaches? She cries out for mercy. We don't know what this woman knew of Jesus or how, but she does. She calls him their Lord and, more surprisingly, Son of David. Son of David was a, a uniquely Jewish term, surprising com coming from the mouth of this Canaanite. It's what the Jewish crowds were wondering of Jesus when he cast out demons in Matthew 12, 22. The Jewish people were expecting a long-promised male descendant to come and take the throne of David. And this Canaanite woman appeals to Jesus for mercy as this long-expected king, son of David. She desires particularly mercy, she says, for her daughter. She says she's severely oppressed by a demon. We don't know what particular affliction she faces, but it's clearly driving this woman, this mother, to desperately seek help. Well, well, Jesus' interaction, starting in verse 23, with the woman is, is curious. It might seem that Jesus is intolerant of her or insensitive to her need. So as we start to, to understand this interaction, I think, I think we have to keep a few things in mind, guardrails that will help us understand. First of all, Jesus intentionally came to this Gentile land. He didn't 
accidentally wander here. He, he comes seeking and saving the lost. Second, Jesus knows her heart. Remember Matthew 9, 4, when Jesus knows the thoughts of the scribes? So whatever goes on here, it's, it's not so that Jesus might learn something he doesn't know about her. He already knows. And third, most importantly, we know Jesus' heart. Jesus says his heart is gentle and lowly, meek and humble. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, Jesus says, all, all who labor and are heavy laden, like this woman, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So as we read this strange episode, and in fact, wherever we find odd things in Jesus' ministries, we have to keep this compass open before us to guide us. Whatever he does, he does it from a heart that is gentle and lowly, who beckons all to come to him. With those guardrails in place, in verse 23, he makes no reply. Silence can create emphasis, can't it? It, it leaves your words hanging in the air. Might his silence be for the sake of his disciples to draw attention to the audacious confession she was making of Jesus, son of David? This is how Matthew began his gospel, calling Jesus the son of David. Then notice how Jesus next instructs his disciples. Verse 23, they, they bring their own request to Jesus, send her away. The impression is that they're annoyed by her, that her incessant crying out is bothering them, and they want Jesus to do whatever he can to get rid of her. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it's unfortunately too typical of Jesus' followers, like those here, to be uncaring. If you've been hurt by a Christian, I'm, I'm sorry. But, but that's why we're here. We, Christians, those who follow Christ, need Him just as much as you do. The, the good news that we offer is not how great we as His followers are, but how gracious God is. I think the implication is that His disciples want Jesus to do whatever she asks based on how Jesus responds in verse 24, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is the same language that Jesus used when he sent out his disciples in, in Matthew 10, what we read earlier. Matthew 10, 5 and 6, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So for now, he declines his disciples' requests, citing this purpose of his mission. Who gave him this mission? God the Father. Why does he say that he was sent? To seek the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What, what Jesus says here is, is true. There is a Jewish priority to his mission. Peter when later preaching to Jews at the temple about Jesus, put it this way in Acts 3, 28. God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Or Paul, later writing to a church with Jews and Gentiles, will say that the message of the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. Both apostles clearly teach that Jesus and the gospel is for the Jews first. But not only. There's more to say about that and we'll get there later. But let's get back to verse 24. 
What, what Jesus says about his own mission here in verse 24 is true. The promises God has made were made to a particular people, the descendants of Abraham, a, a particular ethnic group. And, and Jesus would be faithful to those promises. But I think there's more that Jesus is doing here in verse 24. That as he reminds his disciples of, of his mission, citing it as a, a reason not to answer the Canaanites' woman's request, he does it to highlight what happens next. Despite the truth of verse 24, despite the priority of his mission to Jews, it goes on. The woman is not deterred. She comes and kneels at Jesus' feet, a, a posture of humility. She comes right to the only source of help she can find and utters a simple plea. Lord, help me. This is an, an analog of, of prayer, a request made to God. I just want to observe, friends, that prayers do not have to be long to be sincere. I think one of our biggest challenges in prayer is the heart in which we pray. You know, the Puritans had a saying, pray until you pray. That's not an oxymoron. It's, it's the recognition that we often have to pray long. Long enough and honestly enough to get past the feelings of, of formalism and, and unreality. What we often have to labor for, this woman had naturally pressed on her by her real need. How many of our prayers can be summarized by her simple request? Lord, help me. I wonder this morning, what, what help do you need? I especially wonder if you can relate to, to her as mother requesting for her daughter. As, as I think about our family of Stafford Baptist Church, so many of us have children who are in need of, of help. A help we wish that we could provide, but, but we cannot. Whether it's, it's physical healing, the provision of a job, wisdom for life, repentance from sin, a longed hope for salvation, or, or even to have children. Learn from this this mother, persist in prayer. She's an, an illustration for us. We're not sure how long she cried out to Jesus for help, but she didn't stop. She wasn't deterred, even by his silence. But obviously this isn't just about prayers of parents for their children. We all have fervent desires for ourselves and for others that have not been yet granted by God. I wonder, is there there's something that you might have given up on praying for after years? I was reminded in, in this example to pray for the salvation of some, some very dear family and friends. I am particularly so thankful that the Lord has given us the unique testimony of our, our late brother Franklin's persistent prayer. He prayed for his wife Gertrude for 40 years before she was saved by God's grace. Jesus taught in, in Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow, so that we ought always pray, he says, and not lose heart. He concludes that parable in, in Luke 18:7, And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? And the rhetorical answer is No. He will not delay long. Crying day and night might seem long, like, like 40 years, but the promise is God will not delay long. In, in 1 Peter, we are taught that, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill promises as some count slowness. Our sense of time is, is so different from God's. Our priorities are so different from God's. I can't say that you will always see the answer that you're praying for. Not even Jesus did. Nor if, if you do, that it will come when you want. But the lesson we have in our Canaanite sister 
is to persist in prayer, to not lose heart. Sometimes I think we just need practical help to remember to pray. My mother-in-law prays for the same missionaries in the same spot of her commute every day. I have an alarm that goes off twice a day to, to remind me to make a particular prayer. Maybe you make a common password you use, an acronym that reminds you to pray for a particular ongoing need. And when that's answered, change your password. Get, get creative. Build it into your life to help you to persist in saying to the Lord, help me. Come to Jesus in faith and in prayer because he will not delay long. After she makes her simple request there at the end of verse 25 on her knees, Jesus responds with a little parable. Verse 26, and he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This metaphor repeats the restriction of verse 24, but, but some of its force might be lost on us. When we think of dogs, we think of cute pets. Pets we love to feed from our tables, right? But to the Jews, dogs were unclean. Jews, in fact, referred to, to all other peoples, all Gentiles, as dogs. And the, the children in this parable are obviously the Jews, and the bread would be the blessings from God, like, for example, the healing of her demon-oppressed daughter. But again, we have to, to read this with the story in whole. In the end, Jesus does exactly what the woman requests. And what is the turning point? Well, it's her final reply in verse 27. She doesn't balk at the parable, spit in disgust, I knew you wouldn't help. No, she agrees. Verse 27, yes, Lord. She expresses humility, her own sense that she does not deserve the bread. But she extends the logic of the parable and affirms what is true. Yes, Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, the son of David, must indeed go first to his own people. But that does not mean that his mission must stop there. As one commentator put it, her reply, whether she knows it or not, thus encapsulates the important biblical theology, theology of the election of Israel, not for their own benefit alone, but to be a means of blessings to all nations, a light to the Gentiles. Jesus came to Israel in fulfillment of the promises to be a true and better Israel to do all that Israel was called to do and, and failed. And he came to form a new Israel, a new people, by whom blessings would come to all nations. The picture we have is the, the bread of God's blessings to Israel would be so rich, so abundant, that even the overflow from that table, the crumbs, could feed every Gentile to complete satisfaction. Did you catch at the end what Jesus says of her faith? Verse 28, a woman, great is your faith. Which would you say is a greater display of faith? Walking on water or asking Jesus for crumbs? Our calculus is often wrong. Jesus told Peter when he was sinking in the water, you of little faith. Here, this woman's faith is called great. This kind of faith is to be upheld to all Israel as example. This is the only time in Matthew that faith is qualified as great. Coming from this Canaanite woman. I think we can observe that faith is fueled by prayer. Prayer is to faith like curls are to biceps. Earnest prayer from the heart is a way for faith to be exercised and, and grown. And it's a cycle. Your prayers are then fueled by that strong faith. Our neglect of prayer is, is often rooted not just in busyness. We, we all make time for those things that are most important. But, but in, in unbelief, 
A, a failure to believe God and, and to believe that God answers prayer. So be encouraged by her faith to strengthen your own this morning. This Canaanite woman's faith is great and her request is granted. Her daughter was healed instantly. Church, her prayer was answered. It would be wrong, though, to conclude that her answer was prayer, her, her prayer was answered because her faith was strong. The reason her prayer was answered was the object of her faith, Jesus, not the strength of it. And to be clear, God has decreed the end from the beginning. In the words of Psalm 139, verse 16, in your books were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. We apply that to this woman's daughter. This daughter's days were written. But in that book, God had written that she would be delivered from the demon in answer to her mother's persistent prayer to the only able help. So let her be a testimony to you too to persist in prayer as the means God has appointed to accomplish His promise. Far from being intolerant or insensitive, I think Jesus had a purpose, a beautiful purpose in ignoring and rejecting her. I think His point was to draw out her faith for those very disciples that were complaining about her, to teach them in this Gentile's, Gentile woman what true faith is like. And to teach them as well as us of his purpose for the Gentiles. I think that's why Matthew groups these stories together. To teach us what Jesus was teaching his disciples. That the blessing that he was to bring to Israel through his life, death, and, and resurrection was to be carried by them to all nations. So our passage this morning continues to teach us that the mission to the Gentiles will soon begin. So let's, let's consider the next story and the second reason to come to Jesus because he is capable. Come to Jesus because he is capable in verses 29 through 31. We'll be more brief here because most of this content is not new. It is repeated intentionally in a new setting. What is different here is where and with who this story takes place. It begins there in verse 29 by saying that Jesus went on from there, meaning he left Tyre and Sidon. But don't miss the clues. Yes, it says he is now walking beside the Sea of Galilee, back in Israel. But we have help from Mark chapter 7, verse 31, that tells us in this story he is now in Decapolis. Like the word decade and the word metropolis, this is a group of 10 cities that are largely Gentile in population. But, but we don't have to trust only Mark to see that. Did you notice at the end of verse 31 what they call this God? How the crowds glorify, they say, the God of Israel. That of Israel is a note that these people are praising a foreign God. In all other references in the Gospels to Jews glorifying God, they simply call him God. That means that, that this group, this crowd, is a crowd of Gentiles. And why are they glorifying this foreign God? Because as he has done among his own countrymen, Jesus teaches and heals. In verse 29, we see him ascend a mountain, really a hill, where it, there was a natural spot to teach. And he, he heals. The crowds bring to him in verse 30 all kinds of afflicted people. Those who cannot walk, cannot see, cannot talk, and more. And, and he heals them. Matthew goes to great lengths to underline this point in verse 31. The crowds wondered, he says, seeing the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing. With each varied case, their afflictions were cured. He dwells on it, giving specific. That one, the one that couldn't see, they now see. And on 
and on in verse 31. I think the point is that there is no illness that he cannot cure. If he delays in answering prayer, saints, it is not because he is incapable. Psalm 34, 19 reminds us, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Is he capable? No matter how many are our afflictions, the Lord is capable. Deliverance might not come when we first ask, just like for the Canaanite woman. In fact, deliverance might not come until we die or Jesus returns. But the Lord, the psalm says clearly, delivers the righteous out of them all. Every single one. He is capable of delivering from all affliction, including and especially eternal affliction. We are due for our sins. Jesus clearly cared about suffering, but especially eternal suffering. We have reason to come to Jesus because He is the only one capable of delivering us from our greatest affliction, sin, and the judgment that it deserves. You know, it would be, frankly, pointless For Jesus to heal a crippled limb and then to be cast into hell. To be delivered from a temporary affliction to enter into an eternal affliction. In fact, the, the opposite is true. Jesus uses graphic language to say it would be better to become crippled than to have a whole body and go into hell. Matthew 18, 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or feet be thrown into the eternal fire. Certainly we understand Jesus to be using hyperbolic language here. We notice none of his disciples actually cut off hands or feet. But the point is, physical healing is nothing if it's followed by eternal fire. So Christian, in your persistent pleading, you may not know physical healing in this life because physical healing is not ultimate. Heaven and hell are. So I would encourage you in your persistent pleading as you remember that Jesus is capable to to think of these two truths. First, you will be delivered. On the authority of Psalm 34, 19, you will be delivered. Your hope, your hope is not a happy and healthy life now, but in the new heavens and new earth. If you are in Christ by faith, your hope is not to float around like an angel, but to inherit a world like ours, but is far, far better, where there is no pain or death or disease. You will be delivered delivered from every single affliction. But second, as you wait, you have hope because Jesus has delivered you from your greatest affliction even now, sin. There are many happy and healthy people who are blind to their greatest disease, rebellion against God. So we say that God is merciful in even using temporary, light, momentary affliction to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If afflictions now cause you to hope in Christ, look to Christ, pray to Christ, well, these afflictions are achieving for you eternal good. But friends, Jesus is not only capable of delivering us from all afflictions, as we see here in verses 29 through 31. Church, come to Jesus because he is compassionate. Our third point in verses 32 through 39, come to Jesus because he is compassionate. Again, you should recognize this story. He is still in the Decapolis with largely a Gentile crowd. 
It's nearly identical to the story that we studied in, in Matthew 14, starting in verse 13. Maybe you think, that means we can skip it, right? Been there, done that. We've learned that Jesus is the bread of life. No, despite its similarities, this isn't the same story. Matthew is intentional in putting it here for us to learn. I think there's even a, a subtle clue in the Greek to confirm this. The story in Matthew 14 uses a word for baskets that is distinctly Jewish, kofinos. And here it is a different, distinctly Greek term, spirus. You don't need to remember that, but take it as Matthew's way of telling us who is here. This crowd is not Jewish, it is Greek. Jesus has been with them, he says, in verse 32, three days. So clearly, whatever else it means that his mission is first to the Gentiles, it doesn't mean he needed to rush away from Gentiles three days. But again, note, church, verse 32, I have compassion on the crowd. They've run out of food. He is unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So you might think, yes, Jesus is capable to deliver out of every affliction, but why would he bother helping me? Well, it's because he is always compassionate. This isn't a momentary passion or a bug in the code. The word compassion describes a movement deep inside him. He is always moved by the sight of those afflictions that he is capable of helping in. He is not unmoved by your afflictions no matter how small. Think of it. He's just talking about hunger here and fainting. Really not a big deal. And this, I think, helps us understand our first story too. If he is constrained by holy compassion at the sight of hunger, what do you think his heart was like when he saw a mother desperate for her suffering daughter? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He had compassion. He always has compassion. So again, when we read of the strange interaction with the Canaanite woman, we must keep an eye on this compass, that he is compassionate. You know, saints, that no other attribute is used to describe Jesus' emotional life more than compassion. Friends, we have a compassionate God. No need is too small. Take this confidence into your persistent prayer. His own words in verse 32. I am unwilling to send them away hungry. In his compassion, he does not send us away without supplying. He sees and knows our need. Well, I think a fair question. You might be wondering about the disciples' question in verse 33. They, again, wonder where they're going to get bread, food enough to feed this large crowd. Do they not remember the first miracle? An even bigger crowd? Maybe they don't, but I think it's more likely that they remember, but assume that even though Jesus is capable, they know it, that he won't. These are Gentiles. But Jesus always has compassion. Jesus does feed this crowd and proves that he is the bread of heaven, not just for Jews, but Gentiles as well. He meets the need of this Gentile crowd so that all eat and are satisfied, probably at least 8,000 in total. And these to use the language of the parable, are just the crumbs that fall from the table of the bread of God's blessing, enough to fill all that come and have seven baskets left over. We know that this is surprising for the disciples because it takes so long for them to catch on. Yes, Jesus' ministry was to the Jews, but he would commission his disciples after he died and rose again, to now make disciples of, of all nations. He spoke in, in John 10 of having other sheep, not of this fold, that he would bring to make one flock. 
Consider with me for a moment the whole chapter, all of chapter 15. We studied the first half last week where Jesus declared all foods clean. I think the events of, of our, chat, our section this morning are the necessary implications of that. The old rules about clean and unclean are becoming obsolete in Jesus, including Gentiles being unclean. Last week I suggested that you read Acts 10 at home. If Matthew 15 is the foretaste, the preview, Acts 10 is, is the application. By then, Jesus' ministry to the Jews had been fulfilled. His disciples commissioned to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. I don't often ask you to do this, but I, I want you to leave Matthew, go past Mark, Luke, and John, and join me in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. As you turn there, it's the sto- story of another Gentile, Cornelius. He receives a vision telling him to send men to get Peter and bring him. Get Peter, bring him to you. And as his men, Cornelius' men, approach Peter, Peter has his own vision. Read with me, starting in Acts chapter 10, verse 9. The next day, as they, that is Cornelius' men, the next day, as they were on their journey, approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanting, wanting something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Peter, as bold as he is, saying no to God. Clearly, Peter was still eating according to Jewish food laws. But God tells him here to eat. And even though Peter is still perplexed in verse 17, it it means more. So the the men from Cornelius arrive and Peter goes with them. Look at what he says to these Gentiles gathered in verse 28. Acts 10 verse 28. And he, that is Peter, said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. What Matthew 15 is foretaste and preview, Acts 10 is the application. Peter understands the sheet from heaven to mean more than what he can eat. Thank God for bacon. God has shown him that he should call no person unclean. And so what does Peter do? He preaches the gospel to them. Verse 34 And so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are eyewitnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he had, had commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to, judge, to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter preaches the gospel to these Gentiles. The good news, he calls it, of peace through Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah. Notice in verse 39, we, 
as, as a disciple of Jesus, we were our eyewitnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and Jerusalem. We see that emphasis again. Sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And as far as we know, in verse 41, everyone who saw, who was eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus were Jews. We have no record of any Gentiles being eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. But despite all that, the conclusion in verse 43, now everyone, that God shows no partiality but in every nation, to everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. Brothers and sisters, the the Bible promised all the way back from Abraham and before that Jesus would bring the blessing to all nations. As we look forward, one day there will be an assembly of all tribes, languages, peoples, and nations before his throne. So friends, the invitation this morning is to come to him. He will not delay long. Persist in pleading prayer because he is capable. There is no affliction he cannot deliver from, including and especially the eternal affliction we are due for our sins. And come to him because he is compassionate. He is moved by pity to love and provide for all who come to him. The capable and compassionate Savior welcomes the pleading prayers of all peoples. Let's go to him in prayer now. Father, we come to our capable and compassionate Savior who welcomes our pleading prayers this morning. Lord, that you would meet us in our need. Lord, not only as the one who is capable, but the one who loves and meets our need. Father, our needs are so many. So we pray this morning, Lord, help us. Meet us in our need. And Lord, we pray especially that as we bring our needs to you, to the capable and compassionate Savior, Lord, that we would know that you are the God of all people, that the forgiveness of sins offered in Jesus Christ is available to all peoples. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.